This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. And uh, to mark the end of 2020, we are going to talk about some of our favourite movies of the year. Uh, the past to spotlight a few films we really loved. And then at the end of the episode, we'll give our top five, right? Yeah. And um, before we begin, we should say we are back in the studio. Back but, uh, in the studio, part two, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> we do have one more episode that we recorded remotely in lockdown. So yeah. apologies in advance for any echoing yeah. or any paper rustling <laughs> or, you know, gin in a can yeah. rattling. <laughs> That uh, might have happened that day. I don't know. There'll be none of that today, hopefully. So, do you want to, like, before we get into this, yeah. will we reflect on 2020 as a whole? Pretty good year, right? Oh, for movies? No, no, in general. No, in general. Oh, <laughs> no, right. No, shite. Uh, absolutely awful. <laughs> yeah, Terrible. Really, really never want to experience anything like it again. Some, I think some excellent films, though. And yeah. some are holdovers from 2019, admittedly. But yeah. um, some interesting stuff went yeah, directly some, to streaming some, yeah. new films from Charlie Kaufman David Fincher and Christopher Nolan none of which made my top 10 yeah, but uh, no. Tenet was all like, shite <laughs> Tenet was like 15 for me yeah, 20 okay. but um, I don't know the other yeah. ones I, I thought I thought I had thinking of ending things was pretty good and I thought that Mank was fine I want to get I, your thoughts on Mank on record because I, I love how much it annoyed you I hate Mank <laughs> mostly because well I think it's uh a well put together film. I just think the script isn't there and was probably never there to begin with. And uh, what's wrong with why do people hate Orson Welles so much? The man was a legend, personally and professionally. Like he made some of the greatest movies of all time, and like hates cops. What more do you want? <laughs> Gave one the the best, some of the best interviews of all time. Remember yeah. when you talked about how much he didn't like Hitler? Yeah, great one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a bore. Yeah, it was a bore. <laughs> I do think that um, I haven't seen this other film. I'm going to mention, but there definitely is a, a subsection of Hollywood movies where you don't give a person an Oscar, and yeah. they get very annoyed, and then they make like the most Oscar movie ever. So I think I'm thinking of Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah, Amy yeah. Adams. Did we didn't give it to her for Arrival That's or Nocturnal true. Animals or American Hustle or you know all the great movies she's mm. been in? So she does Hillbilly Elegy. We didn't give it to Fincher for Gone Girl, and he yeah. does Mank. You know, I feel like the the next Oscars are going to be 2021's Oscars are going to be absolutely terrible, just because all these films will get nominated and they'll all win just to as a kind of bad karmic answer to this year I would love if Tenet won best film that would be great because it's so I, no, I'd prefer if it won best sound design <laughs> I haven't even seen the film yet but I, know, I just know from what everyone's saying is that the sound design is awful <laughs> sorry that was like really important information yeah, yeah. I kind of needed we'll get into actual, actual great movies yeah yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about The Lighthouse? Sure. I, my first two I'm going to talk about are horrors. Yeah, so I'd probably be repeating on myself here from our Willem, Willem Dafoe Part 2 episode, but um, I really like the, light, the Lighthouse. It's funny we should mention Mank, actually, because I think it's an interesting comparison point to Mank, because I feel like The Lighthouse actually feels like it, it, it came out in 1930, between, between 1930 and 1950, that kind of golden era of black and white movies, whereas Mank does not. Mank feels like some. I think the audio design of Mank is very good in that it kind of sounds like those movies did where everyone's voices are kind of deep and echoey. Booming. Yeah, yeah. That Orson, that's one of the things that gets right. Orson Welles' voice and the way Orson Welles' voice sounded on those old mics. Um, whereas the actual look of the film, it always feels like someone's just put like an old timey filter over it and not Too even bossy. a good one. Yeah, yeah. it's like a, an Instagram filter. 
as opposed to uh, kind of the grit and texture that the lighthouse has. And uh, the lighthouse has that kind of sound design as well, and they both work in tandem with each other, whereas... Uh, Mank looks like it was recorded on digital cameras that David, that David Fincher is so fond on, fond of with mics that existed in 1942 or whatever. And um, I think what I get a lot of, in, especially in like high quality black and white movies that you'd see, say like Casablanca or something, is that people's eyes have a real shine to them uh, because obviously the black uh, the black black and white came out very strongly in those movies which is why um, people rarely wore black and white in terms of costuming they'd wear like kind of more subdued colours so that pe- the audience wouldn't go ah blinded by uh, by the by the strength of the colours um, so their eyes eyes like they either they look quite wet like people are about to cry constantly or they have a quite a shine to them and I think that's one thing I noticed that Mank gets really wrong like mm. it do, it just lacks if if you're if you're a film fan and you watch and you have seen enough black and white movies then you know you'll know what's missing maybe not uh, like consciously but subconsciously you'll you'll say this something isn't right about this whereas the lighthouse really gets it right you know Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson's eyes have that shine to them there has there's a real like sandy smoky salty grit to the film and uh, I think it's uh, like it has the production design the cinematography and the audio uh, design coupled with two insane performances <laughs> that just really make it all at least as a film uh, technically come together even if it you know thematically is a bit of a frayed rope yeah it ended up being quite high for me it just missed my top 10 and I like the light as I, mm. I would give it four stars like yeah I, I, I think I, I did too. saw it twice yeah. in the cinema yeah. I d- was a bit frustrated with it for that reason we yeah. talked about the womb of yeah. so that it I I'm, I wonder how much it actually means yeah exactly yeah. but um, there is something about it that just lingers in your head and I, I pretty much remember every scene in it I love the performances I actually think as well differentiating it from Mank is that not only is it in black and white because it's referencing older cinema. Mm. I feel like the black and white in the lighthouse adds to the sort of suffocating quality yeah, of yeah. them being trapped on the island and like there being no hope. Yeah, it's that it's that black and white uh, color scheme and the kind of what is it one forty one forty four to one ratio. Yeah, the very tight box, tight boxy Academy ratio. Then that that those two together make you make you feel like you're trapped in this ever enclosed box. Yeah, and Mank, which is a movie I think is fine. Don't really think it has much of a reason for being black and white, other than Orson Welles made movies in black and yeah. white, <laughs> and the black and white, as you said, looks quite different to the black and white in yeah. those movies. So it's a bit of a I don't know a new point. Yeah. At the end. Yeah. How long have we been on this rock? Five weeks, two days. Help me to recollect. Um, yeah, there's two movies I really like. I thought it was a pretty great year for horror overall because, like, I have a few here: Vivarium, The Lighthouse, as we mm. mentioned, Relic, uh, which yeah. I reviewed. I had sort of really liked His House, Bliss, Color Out of Space, and Impedigore, which is this great little Indonesian horror that's on Shutter. Um, it's actually Indonesia's submission for the Oscars this Of course year, it was. Which is so mad because it's such an gnarly movie. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the two horrors I think really stood tall above the rest were Host, which, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll talk a little bit more yeah. about, and St. Maud. Um, two, I, two movies I think are very different, but they're similarly short, small-scale, intimate movies made on a lower budget. Yeah. Yeah, host of the movie I can't shut up about. Uh, we even had its director, Rob Savage, on the show, so people should go listen to that if they haven't. A group of friends based in lockdown decide to do a seance over Zoom, and they bring something 
demonic force which uh, terrorizes them and yeah the film takes place completely over zoom and a software which out of nowhere became a key touchstone mm. in everybody's life in a similar way to something like the Blair Witch Project or Paranormal Activity or Unfriended uh, I think this is a gimmicky horror movie mm. but it's it's such a fantastic gimmick and I, I think it's one that Rob and his co-writers Gemma Hurley and Jed Shepard um, I actually think utilize more effectively than any of those movies mm. in, in, the, in the scares and in how it taps into post-COVID life because we're introduced to the central friend group like a bunch of women and a man uh, that introduction is really natural because we've done those yeah. Zoom calls yeah. in lockdown and you know, with our past guests James Hollihan and Sean Mariani, mm-hmm. shout out. Yeah. And the banter is very funny, and the main group of characters are written in a way where you understand immediately what type of people they are. Like, there's the sensitive, more serious person, and then the one who can't take anything seriously, and yeah. they sort of the attention's a bit more fraught between yeah. them two. And, and then there's the married person who's a little bit more mature, and then there's the token guy who's always in these groups, and then there's the I don't know innocent person yeah. who everyone sort of looks out for like you really get to know these group of people quite quickly in a way that doesn't really feel like screenwritery yeah and if you're like me you'll watch it being like oh I know a person like that oh that yeah and mm. you're kind of link it up to your friend group in a way which is really fascinating so you have that and I think what's very interesting was when I spoke to Rob he talked about how the plan was with Shudder one of the conditions was that they wanted it to be released in lockdown so that you would map onto the yeah, characters yeah. like that and I feel that you really do and also the fact that the movie is only 56 minutes long I believe it's very close to the length of one of those free zoom calls I think they're about 40 minutes Yeah. and he said that they tried to do it for 40 minutes but it, it ended up feeling a bit too rushed so they pushed to 56 it feels like a zoom call yeah, it's amazing yeah. but it's also great in terms of the horror because host probably caused about like a tenth of the budget of something like The Curse of La Llorona, yeah. which is a really boring horror movie. But host, you know, you're making one of these movies on a lower budget, you have to come up with inventive ways to scare people. And yeah. I find that the things that they do in host are fascinating. Like it'll be a little, just a simple light that's in the background of a call after they've done this seance and everyone's joking around and you'll just mm. see like a light flickering in the background and it could just be something that's on the Zoom call like yeah. a little bit of internet static or it could be a demon, yeah. you know? And then there's like a candle, like someone will go to the bathroom as always happens on a Zoom call but their candle that they've had on for the Zoom call will flicker slightly or go out and they won't notice it. <laughs> yeah. Things like that. And it, it just, it does that escalating tension really well to like a really fiery crescendo where everything goes wrong. It's like a roller coaster ride and because it's 56 minutes long, you know, it never really gets bogged down in anything too serious or anything too, like, deep. Or, like, you never yeah, go into yeah. character backstories in a way that can, I think can sag these movies, which basically are just there to sort of give you that rush of adrenaline. And yeah. I think Coast is just, like, a pure cocktail of that. Yeah. So I was really impressed with it. Have you ever done anything like this before? I've never done this over Zoom. Obviously, we're not physically together, but there's no reason why Spirit can't communicate over the internet. On the other hand, St. Maud is a more classical, kind of character-driven horror uh, mob played by Morford Clark, who's in two of my top ten movies of the year, Ooh. so good for her, is a newly devout hospice nurse. Uh, she turned to God after trying to save a patient's life, and now she's caring for... A terminally ill dancer, Amanda, played by Jennifer Ely, who has lived this very bohemian lifestyle. And Maude becomes obsessed with saving her dying patient's soul. And as she tries to, she has these moments of religious ecstasy and visions that spur her on in her quest. But you're not really sure if they're real or they're in Maude's head. Yeah. And uh, it's a debut from writer-director Rose Glass. And she did a Q&A after the Dumb Film Festival screening of this where I saw it. And she talked about making the movie and she was she was very engaging. And she was saying... 
if I recall correctly, that certain sequences which were very key to the movie weren't in the script and were improvised as they were shooting, which is insane because you know it goes to show how gifted she is. Yeah. That like every when you're watching this, not a scene feels out of place, not a moment, not a shot. It all feels very tight and yeah. perfect. And I was very impressed by how the movie seems to draw from other works in the A24 catalog to which this belongs. It's an A24 movie. There's a lot of Ethan Hawke in First Reformed in the character of Maud herself. Uh, the more supernatural sequences feel like they wouldn't be out of place in Hereditary. Uh, the glossy but slightly run-down English seaside town and some of the movie's black humour is very in-fabric, which is a movie yeah. I love. But it never feels derivative, and I think it's probably down to Glass's script, which I think is nabbing elements from all these different things, but is telling its own weird tale where you really have no idea where it's going, and the ending is really shocking. Um, I also think it's down to Morpher Clark, who is wonderful in the title character, and he manages to be terrifying at times, yet also very endearing and funny and sympathetic. And she's also in David Copperfield, which I'll talk about in a bit, where she's playing a character that, again, could be a sort of archetype, a stock character, and adds a surprising amount of humility and weight there. And I think it's because of her that St. Maud plays like both a horror movie and a tragedy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to it, you know, and it's only an 83-minute movie, like similar mm. to Host, very short. It's out in Irish cinemas right now. Mm. Very happy it finally got to release because um, it felt like every time they were about to release a, um, a new COVID lockdown yeah, would happen. Yeah, so yeah. I hope people go see it. It takes nothing special to mop up after the dying. You're prettier than the last one. But to save a soul, that's quite something. Well, I felt the same way about um, The Wild Goose Lake, which I thought really deserved to be seen because it only... uh, I don't know what its release was like in other countries. I'm sure it came out in the cinema in China, which is where it's from. But um, it's... Uh, it was part of the, the it's the last of the 2019 Cannes roundup um, to get a release in this year. And it went straight to movie in Ireland and the UK, I believe. Um, and it's, it's essentially it's a gangster drama about this guy called uh, Zhu Zhenong, uh, played by Hu Gay, who um, or Hu Gi, who is a small time gangster in Wuhan. In 2012, don't worry. Um, Thank <laughs> Who, um, after kind of a scrap over turf, ends up get, being hunted by the police after he shoots a cop in a rainstorm because he thought it was a gangster trying to get him. So he flees to uh, an unincorporated territory called the Wild Goose Lake where he has to decide between uh, either trying to run away and escape or uh, kind of coming up, coming up with this elaborate plan where he... Um, dies so that his his ex-wife can get um uh the in the ins- the bounty money even for his for him and it's essentially like it's this kind of i wouldn't i wouldn't even call it tarantino-esque because it's there's too much of a noir kind of bent to the dialogue that it's never no offense to the film but it's never funny Really? I feel like it, some of its action set pieces are very funny, but it's in the middle of this like quite serious movie. Yeah, and absolutely. That tone yeah. is very strange, but it, yeah. it, it, I, the bit where there's all the people are fighting over the bike thing, yeah, and then yeah. it cuts to just a woman eating a pickle. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> the thing with the umbrella. Yeah, that's the true. Yeah, the, most... the zoo shootout with the... I don't yeah, know, yeah. All yeah, that stuff yeah. is cool. And I think it's, it is like a gangster drama, and it has all those trappings, like it has all... Like, it's soaked in neon and like those kind of sodium hazy uh, yellow lamps and it's very very violent uh, like heads are cut off people get shot in really horrible ways and uh, as you said there's a really gory kill with an umbrella towards the end of the film and but I think it's also like 
this really violent dissection of crime and punishment in kind of a China that's const- that's is constantly changing. Because Wuhan back in 2012 is not the Wuhan it is now. I mean, obviously, there was the devastating pandemic that ran through it uh, in December of 2019. But in 2012, it was essentially just this thi- this area that was run by gangsters and uh, an un- a kind of a uh, uncaring government that was just letting these guys run amok um, until, you know, they eventually, at some point between 2012 and 2019, turned it into this bustling metropolis uh, full of, I think, something like 12 million people. And it, I think it's a, it's directed by a guy called Dao Yinan, who um, directed a film called Black Coal Thin Ice, which won the Berlin Al uh, Golden Bear in 20. 20- 14, I believe, and it won its lead actor, uh, Lao Finan, uh, who is in This and Ashes Purest White, another great Chinese kind of neo-noir drama about changing China uh, from 2019. Uh, he won Best Actor at the same festival for the same film. And all these performances kind of come together because uh, uh, the person who's part of the plan to get the bounty on Zhu is a prostitute called Lu, uh, I forget the character's name I think it might be Lou I I or that could be the actress's name either way terrible haircut on her but you know no offence um, wonderful performance wonderful performance yeah and I feel like like a lot of the performances are kind of animalistic in the way because they're all very desperate and like Zhu Zhenong is like hunted like a rabid dog throughout the film and like he starts off quite like apathetic and uncaring and eventually becomes more and more desperate as things go by and as he realizes like oh shit I don't want to die even if it'll mean like uh, security for my wife and blue eye for the rest of their lives and even like the shootout in the zoo is another guy uh, one of his associates is shot out of a tree essentially as all these wild animals look on and then it cuts to the to him dying in a hospital bed as the police like lean over him like who are you what's your name where's Zhu Zhenong where is he and he's just like <laughs> choking on his own blood and it's really really horrible God you make me want to rewatch it it's so good yeah. um, and it's kind of like the whereas Black Hole Thin Ice was like a very kind of icy film um, this is like very fiery even if the performances are quite muted um, but I think it's like a thesis statement on where Chinese society went wrong in its like treatment of criminals and how this treatment eventually like affects everyone from the people that are being hunted uh, to the cops that are hunting them to the people that are kind of on the periphery like family members like uh, the the ex-wife's places and her son their place is torn apart by the cops uh, at one stage and uh, like Lu Ai Ai is like mistreated because of who she is but she also has something that the cops desperately need so it's this this really kind of intelligent examination of a push and pull which is even more impressive considering how heavily um, the Chinese censors can lean on their films so it's amazing that it can dance this razor's edge between like you know capitulating to the demands of the of a uh, communist society while also I suppose being viewed as a criticism of that society from without that from without of one of Earth's strangest nations Mm. yeah I agree with you on, on pretty much everything you're saying, and I do think good because everything I say is right. I, I it's true <laughs> all of the time. Yeah, I saw this movie, and I thought that I would have loved to have seen it in a cinema because it's got a very strange energy. In that, like sometimes I'd be like, "Oh, is this moving a little too slow for me?" And mm. then there'd be like this crazy, not even a crazy like in terms of over the top, but there'd just be like a moment in an action set yeah. piece or an idea or something and I'll become like really reinvested in it. and I feel like you know, as I was watching it, I kind of wanted to not be distracted by my phone. I really wanted to kind of just go into that world and I didn't know much about the well, 
goose-like place itself that there was this sort yeah. of like and i don't think the movie 100 percent like explains that it's kind, of, it's kind of some kind of haven for criminals exactly yeah. but you know you definitely get that impression i wanted mm. to be more in that world yeah, and i think yeah. seeing it on the big screen would have helped with that um but as i was saying like as I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is maybe a little bit slow. Oh, I'm not really sure if I'm taking this. And then after, the minute after I watched it, I, I, I was so fascinated by it. And these images, like where the cops do the raid while everyone's dancing to Rasputin on the street. Yeah, yeah. That sequence is incredible. And yeah, some of the other stuff you mentioned, the zoo, all that stuff really stuck with me. And yeah. it really lingered in my mind. And I really like the director because I, I love uh, Black Oath and Ice. Yeah. And I love how he'll make these very slow, very atmospheric, very moody movies that are broken with these... Um, quick fast uh moments of violence yeah. and mm. it really snaps you awake yeah and there's uh nothing really like it i don't think anyone's making movies like him no i don't think so either i, I think it, it's kind of like this because china's had a real gun real gun real run <laughs> of um uh like really really good and like not maybe not necessarily neo-noirs but like noir movies that have like that kind of noir movies that have that kind of that share a lot of things in common like the first half an hour of ashes purest white um, basically all of the lo- long day's journey into night, which I'll talk about uh, in a few, and uh, the Wild Goose Lake are all very similar in like in terms, at least in terms of their lighting and uh, very sumptuous movies. The way they move as well, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about Dave Copperfield, as I mentioned yep. before. Um, this is utterly delightful. So you got Armando Anucci, people know from The Thick of It, In the Loop, Death Stalin. He's adapting Charles Dickens's coming-of-age novel, David Copperfield. Set in the 1840s, it chronicles the life of the title character played by Dev Patel as he navigates a chaotic world where he keeps bouncing between these different social stratas and is forced to take on these new personas and title until he finds his... Uh, elusive place in the world and um, I knew she brings so much energy to the source that he recreates Dickens's uh, bustling environments filled with big personalities while at the same time plussing the gags and anyone who's seen um, any of Inucci's stuff will know that the man can write a funny turn of phrase in the novel for instance there's a lot of jokes about people not remembering David Copperfield's name or giving him a different name and it's you know part of the story because it's all about him finding his place in the world so you know there's a big climactic moment where he's like I'm David Copperfield but in the movie the way they like mistake his name is so like convoluted and funny where someone's like who's that guy and he's like that's Copperfield, Davidson. And he's like, thank you, Copperfield, Davidson. Like, <laughs> jokes like that. And like, the, it gets more and more convoluted as it goes. He also has this playful metatextual element, not dissimilar to another movie we'll talk about. Let's talk about connections here. Mm-hmm. Um, True History of the Kelly Gang, where David is obsessed with details and words and is always writing down these phrases that come to him. But he has dyslexia, so he between which is not in the novel. So between that and the various roles he has to play to climb out of the gutter, so to speak, and become a gentleman, he finds it hard to express himself. So the whole movie is about him trying to tell his story. Uh, Maybe worth pointing out as well is that the movie was cast colorblind. So you have actors of different ethnicity and skin color playing people that in the book, certainly, and most likely in the era in which the film takes place, would have been white. Uh, What's wonderful is that Ainucci cast the film so perfectly that you don't care at all. You don't even think about it. So you have these British thespians like Tilda Swinton, Hugh Laurie, a hilarious Peter Capaldi. Peter, Peter Capaldi's amazing in this. You're stealing an honest man's chicken! Um, <laughs> an incredible Ben Wishaw playing like a really snivelly villain, uh, Uriah Heep. 
so you have all these great actors. And, but then there's also Dev Patel, who is of Indian background and is so charming and winning in the main role. And he just radiates this light in Copperfield's eyes and fire in his belly that can't be extinguished no matter how hard and how hard life is and how many hardships he faces. Yeah. And all the supporting characters are these big personalities who pull David Copperfield into their orbit. So you'll spend 10 minutes with one and they'll drop to jump to another. So, you know, why not get the best actors you can, no matter what their race is? So yeah. you'll have like cast Benedict Wong, who can elevate his sad sack alcoholic character, like the guy who walks into a room any time of the day and is like, is it too early for Sherry? <laughs> you know, he, he turns, Benedict Wong turns him into a terrific comic foil, yeah. you know, and cast Nikki Amuka Bird, who always plays these strong, authoritative characters in modern day set stuff as a tough, no-nonsense gentry lady. Like, it's great <laughs> to see. And there's also elements of this film I've never seen handled so well before on screen. So like how Copperfield's relationship with Morphic Clark, who's in St. Juan, um, how their relationship runs its course but it also ties into the fascinating uh, exploration of the, of the nature of storytelling itself. Yeah. I, I don't want to give it away, but yeah. um, just look out for that as you're watching. Like, all not, it made me want to crack open a Dickens novel, which is uh, something I never thought I'd say because yeah. I read Red <laughs> Expectations in my coming-of-age class in oh, college, God. and yeah. it's uh, quite boring. Yeah. They I pay ne- Dickens I, by the words. Did I you know that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No wonder, yeah. yeah. I nearly made it all the way through that, and then I was like, I'm bored and I'm not going to write my essay on this. Screw this. <laughs> Threw the book against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> dropped out of the class. Yeah, dropped out of the class. <laughs> I'm David Copperfield. I'm your nephew. You're the only family I have. What do we do with him? If I were you, I'd wash him. Oh, donkeys! This is a donkey free zone! Move it! You're a remarkable woman. Very kind. Well, I suppose if we're talking period dramas, we should probably uh, get one get to one that's on uh, kind of the bottom end of my list, which is Emma. Emma is a handsome, clever, and rich film. Much like Emma herself. So it's about Emma Woodhouse, the famous Jane Austen character in the novel Emma, played by Anya Taylor-Joy in the film. We stand. Uh, Yeah, we do. We do. She's had a great year. Yeah, I haven't watched Queen's Gambit yet, but uh, I probably never will because it's a TV show. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just this lovely kind of fun and frothy and crackling romantic comedy that feels, feels as modern in its technique that they used to film it as Clueless feels in its setting even though Clueless doesn't really feel that modern anymore but um, Clueless is a period drama I guess period so. comedy yeah, yeah. and it's got it just has a lot more substance to it than you would expect it is still quite slight but it's just very nice it's just a very nice film like a perfect film to see with your mam or your granny which I did at the time it was one of the oh, yeah one of the I think it was the only film I saw with my mam in the cinema this year um, back in February but yeah it's just it's just one of these lovely kind of romantic comedies and it also proves that you don't need to be be good looking to be the male lead in a romantic comedy because like no offence to the three kind of main romantic interests in Emma Johnny Flynn's hot Johnny Flynn is hot yeah and that's why he's the male lead in Emma (laughs) Uh, but people like Josh O'Connor who people will know as Prince Charles in the Crown um, and Callum Turner who has been in stuff as well I think he's in Green Room yeah Maybe, I don't know. Maybe. Um, but yeah, Josh O'Connor looks like a, a Wallace and Gromit character come to life. <laughs> and Callum Turner, like, they spend ages talking th- this his character up. Um, I forget, he's the one that is engaged to uh, Lady Fairfax. Um, but uh, they spend ages talking Callum Turner's character up. Like, oh, he's so good looking. He's so hot. He's so, he's so um, sexy and rich and well-mannered. And then he shows up and he looks like an Edwardian Wayne Rooney. <laughs> You're like, oh, wow, this is the guy. Yeah, Emma, go with Johnny Flynn. Uh, but no, I think it's 
good that a, a period drama will have like lots of these interesting faces. Like it has uh, like Anya Taylor Joy, very interesting to look at. Absolutely. Uh, so is Johnny Flynn and Josh O'Connor and Callum Turner. However, I know that face subject. I think uh, second episode, maybe third, oh. third. Oh yeah, uh, third or fourth, maybe fifth. I was like, we didn't uh, do a Bill Mia, Nye episode. Mia Goth. Yeah, Mia Goth is in it. Yeah. So, um, and she's also very interesting to look at. But Bill Nye is in it. And I think he gets the, the funniest joke of the, the funniest consistent joke of the film, where he's he claims to be of ill health, but he's never actually shown sick. He's just one of these guys who's like has a weak constitution, I guess, in uh, Regency era terms. But um, like he's constantly having screens to stop drafts um, being placed around him. And by the end of the film, he's just like walled in by <laughs> all these. He's like constantly like, do you feel a draft? It's very, 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 it's very, very funny. funny. Yeah. Must check it out. Yeah, it's good. She always declares that she will never marry. I have no thoughts of matrimony at present. Which, of course, means just nothing at all. You must never leave me, Emma. Good heavens, have I missed the party? As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Hello, Joe Rooney here. Back in 2015, I recorded my first pod Rooney. And since then, I've been chatting to people that I meet throughout my travels, here and there, all over the world, including Sean Locke, Mary Coughlin, Frank Kelly, Joanne McAnally, Owen Colgan, Shazia Mertza, Aidan Gillen and Kocha Reardon, but loads of people you'd never heard of who have very interesting tales to tell, including the sadly no longer with us Boston-based comedian Barry Crimmins, who led a crusade against images of child abuse on the internet, Tracy Carroll, whose daughter Willow has the highest grade of cerebral palsy, Drogheda Homeless Aid, Christine Volset, a Norwegian singer-documentary maker who... Ended up hanging out with the young lads in Nursery Dublin and riding bareback on a horse through the city streets. All these very interesting tales to tell, and all you have to do is skip the first six minutes of me talking rubbish. That's Potteroni. And now, back to the show. Will you stay period? Do you want to talk to your history of the Kaligang? Sure, yeah. yeah. So, True History of Kelly Gang is Justin Kurtzel, director of The Snowtown Murders, Assassin's Creed, and Macbeth, back on form. It's about Ned Kelly, the infamous bushranger and outlaw of the late 19th century in Australia, um, who, it's essentially, his journey from boy to man to myth, essentially. The first, I think, 45 minutes of the film is him as a child, is play, played by Orlando Schwartz, I think. Orlando Bloom. Orlando Orlando Bloom, yeah. <laughs> the most boyish actor alive. And then he, the, the, for the last r- half, roughly, of the film, he's played by uh, George McKay, people recognise from 1917 and uh, Captain Fantastic, yeah. And it it's not really an outlaw story. I think you should be clear about that. It, it is kind of, but like it doesn't have the kind of cathartic violence a lot of outlaw stories will have I think like uh, if you go, go into this expecting like bank heists uh, and shootouts like in uh, Michael Mann's Public Enemies then you're going to leave disappointed I think um, but I think it's so visually interesting and so like thematically deep and all the characters feel like really really workshopped by the actors and the director and writers that uh, you don't care by the end of it if uh, you're committed to this kind of thing uh, like there's some really stunning sequences like the ending shootout which is the one 
you know, he's dressed in all the plow, the armour that they've hammered out from plows, essentially. Yeah. And But all the... There's just this big line of Australian policemen shooting at them. Then they're in, like... They're lit by, like, glow-in-the-dark ponchos. Yeah. Just constantly really flashing at you. Yeah. It's cool. And he's covered in soot and blood. And he's wearing a dress as well. And... It's essentially a story of like failed assimilation because he's the children of Irish immigrants played by a, uh, the mother anyway is played by incredible Essie Davis who people know from the Babadook and uh, it's kind of like a story of failed assimilation wrapped up in like a kind of fake history of Australia's greatest outlaw and it's probably one of the best ensemble casts of the year. I think it's like I can't choose between this Parasite or Uncut Gems. Yeah. I, I don't David Copperfield too. But, yeah, yeah, well, so we'll say those are the four best uh, yeah. Ensemble cast of the year, even though I haven't seen David Copperfield. Yeah. Um, I think like it's really hard to pick between Fat Russell Crowe, Essie Davis, Charlie Hunnam, Nick Cave's son, and all, Thomas and McKenzie. All incredibly horny. All incredible, yes, all incredibly horny. But I think the winner for me is Nicholas Holt's kind of psychotic yes, villain. Yes. I think it's, his name is Colonel Fitzmaurice or something like that. Yeah. Fitzpatrick, Fitzpatrick, yeah. Fitzgerald, uh, Fitzy, like yeah, Fitzy. We'll call him Fitzy. There's a part towards the end of the film. I won't. He's trying to find out where Ned Kelly is hiding out. So he goes to Mary, who is uh, Ned Kelly's paramour, played by the wonderfully sweet Thomas and Mackenzie. And he has a child with her um, who he hasn't seen because he's been on the run for so long. But Nicholas Holt comes along to find out where uh, Ned Kelly is hiding out. And he grabs the baby off her and starts threatening it with his uh, revolver. And the baby starts crying. He's not now. <laughs> and... Um, like this scene goes on and on. It's really tense. Like, are you gonna is he is this guy gonna shoot the baby? Is this psychotic asshole gonna shoot the baby? And um, I won't say what happens, but there's a point where his commanding officer comes in and just goes this look of absolute horror on his face. Just goes, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and like, so finally someone says it. Yeah, and I love about his character that he meets Ned Kelly, and they actually sort of have a little bit of a friendship. Yeah, and. Ned Kelly, as a, being an Irish immigrant, is like, I've never met a British person who didn't want to take something from me. And he goes, what could I possibly want from you? I don't want to take anything from you. And then within five minutes of the movie, he's like, yeah, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> that leads to their falling out. Yeah. Uh, which is great. I think it's more a movie about the kind of conditions that could make an outlaw. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, because I think, like, obviously, like, his mother and father were, they're not immigrants. They're, like... They were brought. They were arrested and brought to Australia on the penal ships when Australia was a penal colony, and obviously they served their sentence, but now have to live in Australia. And it's kind of about planting like new root or trying to plant new roots in a soil that is has already been poisoned for you just by your association with it and your conditions as a former prisoner trying mm-hmm. to make a home. And I, I, I think it's shaggy and I think some elements work better than others. Like I really like the shootout that you mentioned, but I think some of the the plot work to get to that shootout, I was a little bit like, oh. yeah, that's true. But yeah. it's like, but that's like all cult movies. The reason that you want to revisit them over and over again is it feels raw, like it yeah, feels alive. Yeah, it feels yeah. like it's got I, this real like folk punk aesthetic to it. There's that quote that goes around that you don't want things to be perfect. You want things to be good because that, they feel alive. You know, yeah, you want spontaneity. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. by the time everything like becomes like, oh, I'm, I've put everything in the perfect way. Yeah, like it feels yeah. a bit dead. You yeah. know, this movie feels like alive. I love its bombast. I love its viscerality. Yeah, um, take notes, Nolan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We give a shout out to Russell Crowe. I mean, he's only in the movie for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, but his whole section of the movie is really delightful. Oh, he's so good, yeah. 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 It was a real reminder of how great Russell Crowe can be. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Are we going to take the future and make it ours? We're the sons of sheep! There is not a man born who could have the patience to suffer the injustice I have. I'm going to talk about Defy Bloods. Yeah, so Spike Lee's Netflix film for African-American vets 
battle the forces of man and nature when they return to Vietnam, seeking the remains of their fallen squad leader, Storm and Norman, played by the late and great Chadwick Boseman, mm. and the uh, gold fortune he helped them hide. And so essentially a remix of Apocalypse Now, Three Kings and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, all movies I love, but it told through an African-American lens. It's a lot of movie, The Five Bloods. Yeah. But I think despite these great credits, the warring tones are never jarring. There's a sequence in the film where a character steps on a mine and if it moves, he'll explode. And it's this lengthy sequence where they're brainstorming how they can get him off the mine in time just so like he doesn't get blown to smithereens. And it's white knuckle tense. And my family and my girlfriend, we all watched it together in lockdown. It was Aww. really nice because it's, it's a real movie, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. I think even if you were, weren't particularly interested in war movies or heist movies or this topic like it's got so much substance to it mm. that i feel like anyone will get invested into it and you could hear a pin drop in that sequence where yeah. you're so invested and as with usual spike lee movies the social commentary feels contemporary and relevant like there's these stats in the film that show that 33 percent of the u.s military forces in vietnam were african-americans despite them making up only 17 percent of america and you know, Hanoi Hanna is a character in the film, this real-life Vietnamese radio personality who made English-language broadcasts directed at U.S. troops. And in the film, she is talking to the black GIs and saying, essentially, why fight for a country that treats you terribly? Mm. And that's why they want the gold. Like, they feel they've earned it. And some of them want to take it and invest in the black community in America to keep yeah. up the fight, you know, the fight for equal rights. And I think certainly if 2020 proved every proved anything, you know, race relations in America you know, seem as yeah. low now yeah. as I can remember being a 20-something person. Yeah. And uh, I think The Five Bloods would always feel timely, but it especially does now. Yeah. And I think the emotional payoffs are so strong, like because you've got this epic, gorgeous cinematography, beautiful emotive score by Terrence Blanchard. And, but the whole cast of The Five Bloods is wonderful. I think special praise should go to Delroy Lindo. Uh, his damaged PTSD suffering soldier who left Nam but never really left mm, Nam. Yeah. And Clark Peters is the calm and collected glue that holds the, the bloods together. And he has this slight but sort of beautiful arc where he discovers that he had a daughter in Vietnam that oh. he never knew that he'd gotten someone yeah. pregnant while he was over serving. And I love that the main four actors in their 60s play their younger selves yeah. without any de-aging and flashbacks because I think it really deepens the themes of the film because it's it's kind of a memory play like these people are being confronted with their most traumatic moments as they navigate this jungle and I also think you know memories work like that like even as I look back in the past it's it's through my eyes now I'm not thinking of myself as yeah, being yeah. 14 or 13 yeah, yeah. You know, so, and I, you don't have the Irishman thing yeah. you know? we should also say like The Five Bloods is one of the final appearances by Chadwick Boseman who tragically and unexpectedly passed away this year and it's an actor he's an actor I've loved since seeing him as James Brown in Get On Up, which is a movie that I don't think works if he's not in the movie, yeah. you know, uh, his raw charisma. And I remember him being cast as Black Panther and being really excited and how he surprised me with his take on the character because he wasn't brash and cool like mm. James Brown was, but yeah. being incredibly regal and feeling like a steady hand, you know, and being really in service of the movie. Yeah. He was really versatile. And yeah, in The Five Bloods, he plays this spectral figure, like something which I think will hit harder now after his death. And, you know, we see him in The Other Bloods as memories and visions. He, he's this character who the main four think of as their hero and their yeah. leader. And they describe him as their MLK and their Malcolm X rolled into one. And There's an image for you. I know. And Bozeman, like has so much presence in the film, even in like little screen time, that you believe in. And it's a shame beyond words that we've been robbed of I, more uh, Bozeman performances yeah. like that. We've been dying for this country from the very get. Now the time is There are things to really We give this goal. It has come to our people. 
Well, I suppose, speaking of memory, um, we should probably get into uh, Long Day's Journey Into Night. It's another Chinese film. It's about a man who returns to his village for his father's funeral. And it's kind of... The first half is very fragmented, and it feels like like memory, I guess. Just because it's, uh, it's, it's him, like, half remembering things as they happened or as they might not have happened. And then uh, it's you know, long sequences of him just walking through his, his old village and remembering things and remembering the woman he uh, uh, used to love there and whether she's still alive or not is um, a big issue and remembering how his best friend was killed by a gangster. But the real meat of the movie, I guess, is when he he's arranged to meet this woman who he doesn't know is still alive. So he goes to an old movie theatre that's about to be torn down. The entire town is basically crumbling and will and will be bulldozed in about a week by the Chinese government, if obsessed as they are with you know building building up new stuff on old stuff. So he goes into a theater theater screen, puts on three D glasses, which is when the audience is supposed to put on their three their three D glasses in in the real world, and he falls asleep. And what happens next is a one shot dream essentially for him, and we follow him through his dream as he. Uh, Basically, everything that is that happens in the first half of the movie is reflected and twisted and remixed in this second half. Long these kind of long one take shots, they're very easy to admire. Like I thought, nineteen seventeen was well made technically, but in practice, like a lot of them, they really lack the emotional consistency consistency that good editing gives a movie. And they become a bit burdened by it. exactly. Yeah. yeah, it becomes a gimmick. And if I suppose if you're going to do a gimmick. Do it like Long Day's Journey Into Night did. You know, just invest it. Build up to all this incredible emotion with, like, this kind of... Not rapid-fire editing, but... You really notice the editing in the first half of the long of Long Day's Journey Into Night. And once you get to uh, the part where there essentially is no editing, then it's not that you miss it, but uh, you're constantly... You're comparing and contrasting the two, and you'll see the themes of, like, loss and love and hope and, you know death and grief all start of all start to emerge but in different ways in the second half of uh, long day's journey into night and it's rare again that you can say something in a film feels like a dream like i think mulholland drive is probably the best example maybe and um like this one this one long shot actually feels like a dream in that there's in your own dreams there's like a logic to what's happening even though when you wake up you're like that made no sense whatsoever and a lot of the time they're unsettling and you never feel like you can consciously stop them and there's no there's no real logic to them even though you're and you're aware of this even though that everything that's happening to you within the dream makes sense and what divides the film is this big massive kind of like in Mandy where the where the word Mandy just flashes up on the screen but this long day's journey into night flashes up on the screen and it's this like Akira style bombast like boom yeah. and you're there now we're now we're getting somewhere yeah. and it's just um it's just a very fluid kind of second half of the movie and that reflects everything that came before and you know I think I think I don't think I'll ever see a film like it again mm. I saw it for um, the East Asia Film Festival and I was sent a screener on my laptop so it wasn't in 3D yeah yeah. well the film I saw in the f- cinema wasn't in 3D either really oh really yeah I mean if you took off the, the 3D glasses it would still the screen would still look fuzzy but there wouldn't be any like effects or okay. anything yeah I, I found this movie really fascinating, but I, I think a little too dense for mm. me, where the whole first half of the movie is very, everything is kind of in hushed tones, mm. and very whispery, yeah. and very enigmatic. Mm. 
the person he talks about his dad dying and then yeah. like he talks about his best friend dying and then like they have similar names and you're like oh who's who yeah. the person he's talking about there and then you'll see that person in the dream sequence at the end and you're like what am I supposed to take away from that yeah. there's a lot of stuff where I was I was really trying I was trying to crack it I think I should yeah. have just given myself over to it yeah. but I reviewed it for Headstuff and I, I feel like my review is me talking about I liking the movie finding it very interesting and then me just trying to be like this is my inter- interpretation on it yeah. so if you watch yeah. it and you're a little bit confused I, I try to break it down I think I'm kind of right mm. but I don't know. I found it a little bit too much work. I don't know. I feel like, well, you had to review it. So I guess yeah. the, it was work for you. Yeah, so exactly. I, 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 I just let myself kind of be yeah. washed along by it. Yeah, I'm going to talk about baby teeth. I won't spend too long talking about this because I discussed We have drinks it. booked. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> uh, I discussed it uh, pretty at length in the Ben Manson episode about um, Eliza Scanlon, who was so great in the underrated uh, Devil All the Time this year. So she had a good year. And she's in Little Women. Little Women as well, um, yeah. Stars as Mila, a 16-year-old terminally ill girl who falls for a 23-year-old homeless drug dealer and addict, Moses, uh, Toby Wallace, who won Venice's award for Best Young Actor the year I was there. Her depressed parents, a psychiatrist father, uh, Ben Mendelsohn. The Mendo. And uh, former musical project mother, Essie Davis, who's in Babadook and True History of the Kai Gang, are first against the union, yet seeing how happy Moses makes Mila, they decide to put up with the pairing and invite her boyfriend to live in their home. And there's a line in the trailer where Mendo has Moses pinned to the ground and like they're fighting and he's like, I don't like you. But Mila should have the word at her feet right now. <laughs> and um, as I said in the Mendelssohn episode, Baby Teeth had everyone at my Venice screening in floods of tears. It's not aggressively sentimental. But, and I think what's kind of groundbreaking about it is that it's, a, it's a cancer drama which skews endless scenes of you know, doctor's appointments and hospital wards. And we never learn exactly what type of cancer Mila has. Yeah. But it stays mostly in these domestic spaces and is an intimate forehander and it's showing the strain Miller's diagnosis puts on her and those around her characters, I think even made more three-dimensional by yeah. the verisimility of the actors playing them. I think the movie's depiction of a family at the end of its rope and taking weird steps to ease their burden, not just in terms of letting Moses in, but in other aspects of their life. It's very funny, but always tragic. And it's such exposition that allows Baby Teeth to find beauty and humanity in the pain yeah. of everyday life. And the soundtrack slaps too. I wanted to rewatch it before this episode, but I actually saw that it's coming to Irish Netflix uh, at the end of the year. So everyone can watch it then. I think December 31st it's dropping. But I was looking at the quotes page on IMDb just to kind of feel yeah, the movie yeah. again and it's great script and there's a line I can't say because it's a spoiler but just remembering it made me cry <laughs> oh so, Stephen yeah definitely recommend uh. I'll do anything can he please stay Mila he threatened me with a meat prong he threatened my wife with a meat prong I don't want to hide it so don't Moses Henry Henry Mila should have the world of feet right now well speaking of Stress, I guess. I guess terminal illness will call you stress. Let's go with Uncut Gems. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. yeah, so for any for anyone that doesn't know, Uncut Gems is about Howard Ratner or Howie, the uh, the Sandman, Adam Sander, who is a gambling addict and jewelry dealer in New York who owes big money, large money, to Arno, his brother-in-law, played by Eric Borgosian, and he's trying to um, sell off a an uncut black opal was mined in Ethiopia. And the movie is essentially his odyssey trying to sell off the stone so he can pay off his debts to Arno and many others. And like I said, it's probably got one of the best ensembles in uh, this year anyway, outside of Parasite and True History of the Kelly Gang and David Copperfield. You know, you have the like, you have the Eric Bogosian, you have Idina Menzel, you have uh, newcomer Julia Fox, uh, the Sandman. 
Uh, and you have Keith Williams Richards, a new discovery, who was uh, spent years sick uh, because he was a 9-11 rescuer. And Reese only recovered when the Safties and got cast directly after his recovery uh, by the Safties in Uncut Gems. Uh, which is why he has that raspy voice. Are you having a good time? That kind of thing. Um, it haunts my dreams. Yes. Yeah. I like, <laughs> my favourite bits with Adam Sandler says, yes. Yes. And I feel like it's a film that like, it's no matter how off the rails it goes, it still feels very real and like, you can tell it was managed. It was uh, directed in a really, really good way. Controlled chaos. Yeah, I controlled feel like chaos. It's like the, if the weather service could direct a hurricane, you're kind of close to imagining what this movie was like. <laughs> and um, and everyone in this film is uh, yeah. either is some kind of scumbag in spirit or looks like a scumbag. It's just such a well cast, written and directed movie. Yeah, and I, I saw this in cinema. I saw it in cinema twice. You know, oh, wow. In yeah. January, yeah. Because uh, I feel like a lot of people discover this on Netflix, but mm-hmm. um, I was one of my favorite cinema experiences I had in years. I went into it by myself, and it was just it was like being on a roller coaster. I found it exhilarating. I love pretty much everything about it uh, the pounding electro score, Adam Sandler's hilarious, tragic performance, uh, the really funny, whip smart script. Uh, are, you, are you driven resurface your fucking swimming pool? <laughs> I never do. Cold for supporting cast, as you said. Uh, I want to give, give a shout out to Eric Bogosian as Arno, really great performance. Um, basketballer Kevin Garnett, mm. insanely good. Yeah, he's can't believe he did it. Yeah, doesn't paint him in a great light. No, and isn't like a kind of space jammy kind of thing. <laughs> like they could have just gotten an actor, but he, it's it's amazing. Yeah, that bit where he's watching the basketball match on TV yeah, and yeah. Kevin Garnett's like the stone, it was the, the stone, rock. It was the rock man. <laughs> um, and Ke- Julia Fox playing the only decent person in the movie. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to watch it every month on Irish Netflix for the foreseeable <laughs> future. I told you about how things were going to go. You like the way things are going now? That's my family. Get the kids out of the house. You having a good time? Yes. I'm going to talk about Emma. But it is Emma with one M, yeah. uh, the Chilean way. Mm. Uh, after making 2016's excellent anti-biopic Jackie, starring Natalie Portman, uh, filmmaker Pablo Lorraine returned to his native Chile to shoot this experimental drama thriller, Emma, featuring extended acrobatic dance sequences, flamethrowers, and a whole lot of sex. Uh, the end result is a film so exciting, so thrilling, that it feels borderline dangerous. And that's pulled from my letterbox review. I was on top form that day. Um, <laughs> newcomer uh, Mariana Di Lamo, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, uh, sets a screen on fire as the title free-spirited pyromaniac dancer uh, reeling from a bitter split with her choreographer husband who's played by the great uh, Gael Garcia Bernal um, this is after an adoption attempt went awry uh, Emma goes to some drastic lengths to reunite her family and it's a movie that breaks the rules like you hear about show don't tell uh, mm. in writing this is very tell and show yeah. uh, it's characters are unpredictable and hard to empathise with and understand yet those qualities are sort of what makes the movie feel so exhilarating and thrilling and freeing and I think Emma is less a drama than a sensory experience, one that just bombards viewers with this pulsating score from Nicholas Jarr, stunning visuals, bold physical dance sequences. But it's also very rewarding on a story level because in the film's final act, the twisty screenplay finally unravels, melding perfectly with the movie's daring style, and it leaves viewers with an ending that will just make them want to restart the whole movie from scratch. And you know it's really good because I'm not holding this against the film, but I ran into Pablo Lorraine at a nightclub in Venice and I asked me and my friend asked him to take a photo with us and he said no <laughs> and I still love the movie fair play yeah nunca me va a dar un hijo un hijo de verdad yo te di un hijo 
De verdad. Te lo tiraste por ahí. So we got Portrait of Lady on Fire? Yes. This is my number one, just for just for okay, cool. your listeners' records. All right. yeah. So I think it's the warmest and saddest movie of the year. Do all lovers feel like they're invested? That's it, though. That's it. That's the one. Um, so Marianne is a painter, uh, played by Naomi Merlong, who's uh, hired to paint Heloise, who is uh, recently returned to her family's island off the coast of Brittany uh, to marry the man her sister was supposed to, uh, but her sister committed suicide uh, because she didn't want to be married. And um, basically, over the course of uh, about 10 days, uh, Marianne starts to fall in love with Heloise and, uh, and it ends in a fiery relationship that burns up the screen and feels as desperate as it is passionate. And it's, it's, it's a movie that like expresses the kind of realizations about relationships and sex and love that we all have like in the moments when we realize we're uh, feeling these things or in our first relationship or uh, having our first time even. It's like the line that Heloise, who is a virgin at the start of the film and is only is new to all these experiences with uh, Marianne when she says do all lovers feel like they're inventing something and it's like yeah that that really crystallizes everything about these things that uh, you had never realized needed to be put to words before and like you can tell it's kind of a script polished within an inch of its life but it's it's still so raw and just bursting with human emotion that you just don't care and turns into this gorgeous fantasy that's bookended by moments of really harsh heartbreaking reality and uh, each there's no, there's only four characters in the movie but they, they all feel lived in and like they have a deep rich inner life like the maid Sophie who's played by Luana Bajrami and the countess who's uh, Valeria Golino who people might know from the Hot Shots films and um, Rain Man and Bra- and yeah Rain Man yeah it's a film about like waiting and looking and longing appropriate enough considering I was waiting and longing to look at it um, and I think had the French had the French picked it for their best foreign language entry at the Oscars I think I think it could have beaten Parasite yeah it could have mm. and I like Le Miserable but um, what were they thinking yeah <laughs> fools and I, I like this is maybe more superficial I think you're completely right what you're saying but I love how gothic this movie is I think a lot yeah, of people are talking about yeah, it as yeah. being a romance movie and it certainly is but mm. it's a gothic romance yeah, and like that yeah. look the scenery with like the trapped maiden yeah. on this castle that you have to get to you know by boat yeah. and like the, all the, the shots of literally ghosts in her, like in her the, wedding dress yeah, yeah. exactly the like ghostly like her ghost of mm. future past and yeah. also like the idea of like her sister having killed herself mm. on in this place yeah. and maybe the memory of her kind of lingering like there's all this like great stuff now I love that no one's a villain in the movie that like the Countess yeah, could easily yeah. be a villainous character mm. and she's not and the movie never really has any of those things which I hate in romance movies where you know Eloise finds out that Naomi lied to her about why she was there and then that led to their split yeah. or someone is like you cannot see that person mm. like there's no artificial conflict Celine Shiam who directed it trusts viewers to know that that there is this like repression of the era in which yeah, the movie is yeah. set this you know social mores and even they like the characters know that once yeah. they start the relationship it is doomed. ultimately yeah, doomed yeah. you know performances are amazing I love how poised and assured Naomi Merlant's character is yeah. and you never for a minute question that she's a great painter like yeah. of course she is Adele Hanel is so like fiery and sensual yeah. and she's the fire of the title like mm. she's got this thing a bit like Dave Patel in Dave Cupfield yeah, and she just burns away the kind of icy exterior yeah exactly really great the way their relationship is all in like touch and like stolen moments yeah. and glimpses yeah. really incredible Celine Shama must have so much trust in Adele Hanel over that last shot of the movie because basically it's a two and a half minute close up on her face mm. and the camera just stays on her and it tells you all you need to know yeah and i yeah. that 
he's insane. It's some of the best mm. acting I've ever seen. Yeah. I think we should do Adele on the show because she's a really interesting film. Absolutely. Quand vous êtes embarrassé, vous mordez vos lèvres. Vraiment. Quand vous êtes troublé, vous respirez par la bouche. Parasite. Let's do mm, it. Let's do it. Yeah, I, I talked a lot about Parasite in the Song Kang Ho episode and you hadn't seen it. Mm. But I, I just want to point out, it's very rare that a massive mainstream event like the Oscars completely aligns with our personal taste. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, not completely because Renny Zellweger won Best Actress for the Jesus most paint by numbers Christ. movie of all time. But I'd Par- forgotten. But Parasite swept. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, uh, Best International Feature Film. And, you know, given Song Kang-ho, Best Supporting Actor, having one of the most devastating character acts, almost yeah, completely yeah, expressed absolutely. silently through minor facial gestures. But pretty good yeah. overall. And it makes sense that was the last good thing to ever happen. <laughs> and it's saying something important about class divides because in that first half, it's like this very fun culture clash con movie. But then mm. it takes this dark turn in the second half and it becomes more about, you know, what are you willing to do for the seat at the rich person's table? Yeah, do you yeah. screw over another poor person? <clears throat> That's capitalism fought in the micro. And other movies have explored this, but none with the sharpness and confidence of Parasite. And every detail, every symbol, every line that seems to throw away funny the rock it's so metaphorical um <laughs> takes on greater significance and weight by the film's end and even something as simple as how when they're at the birthday party the climactic birthday party mm. they're all dressed as native americans like that felt very striking to me as i watched the movie the first time even if i you know hadn't completely gotten this significance or maybe registered it there's like articles about that just detail like <laughs> that's how obsessive people are with yeah. this movie and how rich it is and i think what's crazy is we're genre fans here and i think this is Ho's best work to date because it takes themes that have run throughout his sci-fi work like the host Akja most notably Snowpiercer and places them in a recognisable rooted in reality social environment yeah. yet somehow is like even more thrilling than those movies like, yeah. I don't know how he does it I don't know either and I hope I never find out yeah. I just wanted the magic man to keep doing his thing it's just the way each separate part of the film like just clicks into a greater whole it's a method that's really hard to see being bettered in the future and I think it'll only rarely be equalled probably the most cinematic play in history yes. to be honest <laughs> Yeah, well, we do our ten, nine. Yeah. All right. Ten, host. Nine, the personal history of David Copperfield. Eight, true history of the Kelly gang. Seven, St. Maud. Six, the five buds. Five, baby teeth. Four, Emma. Three, uncut gems. Two, portrait of a lady on fire. One, Parasite. Ten, Long Day's Journey Into Night. Nine, Emma. Eight, Uncut Gems. Seven, The Lighthouse. Six, The Wild Goose Lake. Five, True History of the Kelly Gang. Four, Promising Young Woman. Three, Little Women. Two, Parasite. And one, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Let's get pints. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Email us at iknowthatfacepod at gmail.com. If you have a character you'd like us to cover on the show or you're someone who works in media, film. Want to sponsor us. Want to sponsor us. Let us know. Hit us up there. Follow us at Twitter at iknowthatfacep1. Follow us at Instagram at iknowthatface. Follow us at Facebook on our new Facebook account at iknowthatfacepod. Thanks to Shani Fernandez for editing and running our socials. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. Check out the Headstuff's film section. I hope by the end of the year we will have uh, lots of best of the year content and look ahead to 2021. Check me out there. Uh, see you later soon. Bye-bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.